Father, I pray that we would be confident and sure of that thing, that one thing, that you will finish the work that you started in us. And no matter how dark or difficult or seemingly impossible that may be, what we know is that you take great delight in those you've called your own. You take great delight in carrying us into your presence. So, Father, may we rest in the everlasting arms, knowing that we can have full confidence that the work you started, you will more than finish. We look forward to that day. Now, Lord, I ask that as we look at your word, that you would uh, simply open our eyes. Lord, I pray that you would carry somebody from darkness to light today. That you would take somebody who is currently an outsider and bring them to be an insider. We know you can do that. And you do it through the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So we ask that the Holy Spirit would have free reign among us. You've purchased our pardon and our peace through the finished work of Christ. So we pray, Father, that our eyes will be fixed on him. For it's in his good name I pray. Amen. Ah, amen. All right, Mark chapter 3. You can take your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 3. I usually ask, how are we? I think I know the answer to that question this morning. Welcome to the victimization of the Tennessee Titans. I am familiar with it. Um, good news is, uh, the way that the Patriots work anyway, is we lose one year, we win the next. We'll see how that works for you guys next year, shall we? At preach it, right, sure. Um, that wasn't prophecy. <clears throat> um, so as we continue in our, our study of the, the book of Mark, it is a favorite gospel of mine. I've expressed that a couple times. I want to get lost in some of those details this morning. But, but as, we, as we look at this book, what we get to see is, again, who Jesus is and what it is he's done. The book is about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's about the good news that he comes and preaches. And, and understanding, and I talked to a number of people this week uh, about this, understanding that as Jesus is preaching the good news, he is preaching himself. I mean, that, that, that's the only good news that there is. He, he wasn't pointing to another military hero. He wasn't pointing to a political hero. He was pointing to himself as the, the answer to all of the problems that these people were carrying in their hearts. So it's the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. And this morning, as we uh, walk through Mark chapter 3, I'll give you a little bit of a heads up. I'm going to bounce a little bit throughout the chapter um, because I think in this chapter we get some snippets of two different groups of people. You get a, a picture of an outsider, a group of outsiders, people who are not um, close to Christ, instead outside of Christ, those who are opposed to Jesus. And you get a picture of those who are insiders, those who are actually indeed close to Jesus. And, and as we look at these pictures, I think sometimes, for some of them it's obvious, and for some of them it's a little bit surprising. And, and I think in the surprise we can find some encouragement. So I want to begin with this group of outsiders. And I think we get them right out of the gate there in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. So why don't you uh, we'll, we'll read through it, and I'll, I'll stop and make some points along the way. But starting in verse 1 of, of chapter 3, Mark says this, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a, a shriveled hand. 
Now, we don't know how his hand was shriveled. It could have been from an injury, and now it's atrophied, and, and, and it's, just, it's just deformed at this point. So, verse 2, in order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. So, here you have a group of Pharisees who have come to intensely, specifically, and intentionally watch Jesus to see what he's about to do. So there is no question about Jesus' ability. There's no question about what Jesus has already done. They're just trying to catch him doing something that they would disapprove of. All right, verse 3. Jesus told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to the Pharisee, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? But they were silent. Okay, so let's, let's talk about what's happening here. Jesus takes this man who has the need of healing, and he causes him to stand up in the midst of all the people so everybody can see him. His, his shriveled hand, his, 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 his injury, the, 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 the part of his body that actually needs to be healed, and he stands this man up in front of everybody, and everybody's eyes are upon him. And remember, these men have come to watch because they want to catch Jesus in the act of violating the Sabbath law, which was there was to be no healing on the Sabbath unless it was to save a life. And so Jesus asks them this question, okay, so, is it lawful to do good or to do evil on the Sabbath? Now, how are they supposed to answer that? So if they say, well, to do good, well, what they're then doing is saying, Jesus, you, you can act in a way that contradicts the very laws that we've established, that healing is against the law on the Sabbath. And so if we say to do good, you do good, we, we've just said it's okay for you to violate our laws. But if we say to do evil, then the crowd turns on us. What is it that we're, we're supposed to do? And so instead of answering him, what they did, and this is actually a, a debate tactic of the ancient Near East, is they stay silent. I don't know about you parents, We've had a child or two decide to use the same tactic with us. And I'm going to be honest with you, it's infuriating. And Jesus found it to be the same. In verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, Jesus was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he told the man, stretch out your hand. So the man stretched it out. His hand was restored. Jesus was angry. And the anger that he had wasn't because they just weren't aligning together. It was because there was a hardness in their heart. There was a, an active resistance to what God was doing right there in front of Jesus. They know Jesus can heal this man. They just want Jesus to do it in a way that aligns with their rules. So now at this point, the Pharisees, now let me go back again, just in case some of you weren't here, let me explain the, the Pharisees in a real, I mean, this is, this is oversimplification, big time. The law of God is the very word of God that is found in the Old Testament, okay? So we'll call that the law of God. What the Pharisees had done was interpreted the law, came to an understanding of what they thought violated each of God's laws, and to ensure that their people wouldn't violate those laws, they, they, they built a fence around that law. So this is the illustration I used. I'll use it again. So let's say the law says no television on Sundays. You don't have a reason to watch television on Sundays anymore anyway. Welcome to the club. Okay. Um, <laughs> no television on Sundays. Well, what, what, what the Pharisees would do was to protect those people would be build a fence around it and say, forget no television on Sundays, no television. 
So that way, if people followed their rules, well, they certainly weren't going to watch television on Sundays then. And, and so what the, what the Pharisees are doing is they are now, with Jesus, protecting their fence instead of protecting the law. They're protecting their own rule, their own position, their own authority, instead of uh, protecting God's. And they've gotten to this place now where, man, if Jesus, if you don't play by our rules, well, their influence and their position is diminished, and Jesus refuses to play by their rules. Look at verse 6. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. That's an astonishing verse. It's an astonishing verse. There's two reasons. First of all, you have the, the Pharisees who are like, Jesus, make sure you don't violate the Sabbath by healing. And then they go on the Sabbath and plot the very murder of Jesus. So, so, so it's a little, little surprising there. And then, then there's this other astonishing thing that happens. This group, the Pharisees, find an ally in another group, a very surprising group, and they're called the Herodians. Now, most Christians aren't very familiar with who the Herodians are. Um, while there's not a ton of information about them, even in history, what we do find is the Herodians are a group of Jews who believed that the hope of Israel was to be found in Herod the Great and his family. Herod Antipas was the Herod in control during the time of Mark. That is probably the one they were most aligned with, which is crazy. Because if you don't know much about Herod, let me explain this to you. He was a brutal ruler who was stained in the blood of everybody who opposed him. He was a man who was morally repugnant. We, we flash forward a couple of chapters, and we're going to get there in a few weeks, where, where this man, Herod Antipas, ended up marrying his brother's sister. We, we don't know all the details of it. We do know that John the Baptist preached against it because it was morally inappropriate, and, and, and Herod had him arrested. We also know that Herod threw this great party, and his own stepdaughter came out and danced seductively, caught Herod's attention, and Herod offered her, whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. And you know what she asked for, right? The head of John the Baptist. And Herod gave it to her. So, so you've got this group of Jews who are looking at Herod saying this morally repugnant human, this murderer, he is the one who's going to bring about the hope of Israel because, hey, at least he'll get us what we want. So these, these seemingly religious Pharisees have now felt that their position is being threatened, and so now they align themselves with a group of, and I'll use this word and you just have to bear with me, politicians that in fact they're enemies with, all in order to maintain their status or their position. Um, I would, <laughs> if I was a chicken, I would say, draw your own conclusions, and I'd move to the next verse. Let me, let me do it this way. Let me define the outsider in this text. The outsider in that passage is somebody whose God looks an awful lot like them. So it's my rules. It's what I like. It's not God's rules. It's my rules. God wants me to have. God wants me to be in charge. God wants this. God wants that. God wants that. I know he wants that for me. So regardless of what everybody else around me in wisdom has told me, regardless of what my counselors have told me, regardless of what my friends have told me, regardless of what the word of God has even said to me, I know that God wants me to be happy. 
so we do unthinkable things. Because our God looks a lot like us, and he wants those for us. More specifically, we support some unthinkable political figures who violate all that we hold as holy in order to get what we want. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, that is a trap. That is a trap with sharp, sharp teeth that we fall into all the time as American Christians. Now, there's time to be more specific about that later, specifically since we're in an election year, and you guys are still licking your wounds after last night, so I'm not going to jump in there and, and jump political on you. But we must be careful we don't fall into the political trap of thinking that our great hope lies with a Republican. Because it doesn't. I would say Democrat as well, but most of you don't wrestle with that one. Your great hope is not in a Republican. Your great hope is not in any man. Your great hope is in the Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. Don't fall into the trap of the Pharisees. All right. Almost made it through that one unscathed. Let's go ahead to verse 20. I want to jump to another group of outsiders. This one's actually a little more surprising, I think. Verse 20, the story's being told. <laughs> Jesus enters a house. We're not sure which house. Again, it could be Simon's from chapter 1. We're still not sure. When he enters a house... The crowd gathers again, so they're not even able to eat. So, so, so let, me, let me picture this for you. They're packed in the house. We're not sure why they can't eat. We're not sure if they don't have time to eat. We're not sure if they don't have the room to, like, to pick up their hands and get the food to their face. We just know that they're in the house, and the crowd is gathering at them. Let me, maybe, maybe, I think we don't understand what it means to be in a crowded position like that. So let me, let me paint the picture for you this way. Have you ever been, <laughs> I, I don't know why we keep going to the Ravens, um, but have you ever been to a sporting event? It can be the Ravens, whatever. Have you ever been to a full arena where it's a sporting event and every seat is taken? Have you ever been to one of those? Raise your hand if you've been to one of those. Okay, maybe a concert. Maybe you've been to a concert where it's just like, there's a ton of people here. Everybody at a concert? Okay, you're fairly familiar with that. Let's, let's just say this. Let's say this room here. It's not super crowded, but it's a full house. Okay, great. Okay, now let's just imagine for a second that everybody in that room has got to get next to you and touch you to be healed. How suffocating is that? See, that's the feeling of the crowd came into the house and it was crowded. They couldn't even eat. It, it isn't just, oh, there were a lot of people here today, praise Jesus. No, 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 no. It was everywhere Jesus went, everybody was convinced if they just were able to touch him, all their things would be taken care of. So much so that you, you go back in um, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, he tells the disciples to have a small boat ready for him so the crowd doesn't crush him. So he sets up an escape plan because there's so many people continuing to to come at him. So that's verse 20. Verse 21. When his family heard about what was happening, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. So the family of Jesus hears about the ministry of Jesus. Maybe, maybe they hear that he's not even able to eat because he's so popular. Maybe there's a number of things that they could have heard. We're not sure what they heard, but, but his family hears. Now, here's, here's something we got to deal with because most of you, maybe not most of you, probably half of you are like, wait. Jesus had a family? Yes. Jesus had a family. I know this is going to be surprising to you, um, to some of you, but it shouldn't be. 
So what it's talking about here, let's look down to verse 31. He further describes his family, his mother, his brothers. They came, they're standing outside, and they sent word to him. So, so Jesus' mother, you know that part of his family, right? That's Mary. But his brothers? Do you have brothers and sisters? Well, Mark 6 tells us, and we'll get this in a couple of weeks, but I'll put this in front of you. When people are talking about Jesus and all the things that he's doing, they're saying, well, isn't this the carpenter? The son of Mary? The brother of James? Joseph? Jude? And Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? See, it wasn't a shock to the people that Jesus had brothers and sisters. So I'm just going to tell you that the, 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 the teaching of the perpetual virginity of Mary is an inaccurate teaching. Okay? He had brothers. He had sisters. Now, albeit they were half brothers and half sisters because they didn't have the same daddy. But, but the, the, these are them. These are his brothers and sisters. So again, his family has heard, back to verse 21, they heard what was happening, and they came to the conclusion that Jesus has clearly lost his mind. It says that he's, he's gotten carried away, and people are getting offended by him, and the family in some way is feeling the heat of that, that offense. Perhaps they're, they're, they're just being um, incredibly sincere, and they want to protect him from himself. And so again, verse 31, they arrive outside of that home where all the crowds were there. They send word to him and they call him. Um, we'll get to verse 32 here in a few minutes. But, but here's, here's the, 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 the interesting part that I think we need to wrestle with. We need to understand that his family, as they looked at the ministry of Jesus, didn't see his ministry as being a super positive thing. And this wasn't just sibling rivalry. Okay, this just wasn't this, this okay, um, how come Jesus always gets away with everything, Mom? Okay, it's, it, it's not that. It actually is probably a fulfillment of um, Psalm <clears throat> 69. It says, even my own brothers pretend they don't know me. They treat me like a stranger. It, it just means that his family is clearly not on board with what he is doing. They think he's in trouble. They think he is, he is causing his own trouble. And so they arrive to intercept him. I mean, they're not, not trying to stop him as a matter of intentional spiritual warfare. They just didn't understand who Jesus really was and what he was doing. And so, so I have no doubt that, that the family of Jesus was, was trying to um, apprehend him. It talks about how they wanted to restrain him. They wanted to arrest him. They wanted to carry him away. I have no doubt they were incredibly sincere and well-meaning in their efforts. But no matter how sincere you are, if you're wrong about who Jesus is, you're an outsider. There's people who are incredibly sincere, who, who really do like Jesus, but they don't completely buy into or understand what it is he's doing. And, and I don't doubt your sincerity, but you can be sincerely wrong about a lot. Uh, um, so I, I will say this. this. This sounds aggressive, but I think it is accurate. I hate Siri. You know what Siri is, right? That little human being thing, Android Bob that lives inside your iPhone. I despise Siri. And I will tell you why. I am not a good estimator on ages. And my wife and I will be watching something, usually a sporting event, and the question, it always comes from her because she's good at this and I am not. The question will be, how old do you think he is? Remember that trap I talked about before? That's a trap! But I haven't learned. And since Siri has come on the scene, it's a trap where it gets pointed out to me very quickly how wrong I am. Somebody like, ah, he's probably in his late 20s. I, the first one that I remember this happening was, was Randy Johnson. 
Um, Randy Johnson, the, the old uh, Major League Baseball pitcher, and he was older than I expected, way older than I expected. And the problem is instead of waiting days and hoping my wife would forget, now she just goes, let's find out. Hey, Siri. And you just wait and you hear the voice. Randy Johnson is 45 years old. And she just smiles. She doesn't have to say anything. And I'm like, well, I guess he ain't 30. I hate Siri, but I could be sincerely, I certainly, like, man, he's just, I'm sure he's that old. I'm certain he is just that old, not, not a day older. And then Siri comes and pops the balloon. And I realize I might have been sincere and convinced Man, was I wrong. I think Jesus' family was sincere. They seemed to have great motives to protect, to, to save Jesus, even from himself. But they were wrong because they didn't understand who Jesus was. And to be sincerely wrong is to still be wrong. Now, another small takeaway from this that I think is important we under, need to understand. You can be a relative of Jesus and still be an outsider. Growing up in proximity to Jesus doesn't make you an insider. No more than growing up in a garage makes you a car. Okay, so, so I think many people go to church, grow up in a Christian home, they're baptized, they give sacrificially, but, and yet many of those still stand outside. You do know God doesn't have any grandchildren, right? Not a single grandchild. You're either his child or you're not. The relationship with God isn't about who else knows him. It's about your willingness to repent of your sin and follow Jesus. So, so, so many of you are here on the coattails of mom or dad. May I encourage you, it's, it's not about mom and dad's faith. It's about yours. Are you a child of God? Have you placed your faith in Christ and in Christ alone for the salvation of your soul? Do you depend on Jesus' finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the grave to, to gain an acceptance in God's eyes, or do you think it's something else that you're doing? God's got no grandchildren. You're either his child or you're not. Okay, now let's get to the, the real simple part of this passage, which I really can't wait to get to, starting in verse 22. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem, so, so these scribes had come down intentionally from Jerusalem to check Jesus out again. They probably had ill intent on their mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So Jesus summoned them, and he spoke to them. So, so here's this, the idea. The, the scribes have come down, and they begin to attack Jesus. They cannot argue with the authority that he's demonstrated and what he's doing, so instead they're going to attack the source of his authority. And so what they say is, okay, he's got Satan's power. Uh, uh, that's how he does these things. And so it seems like they're talking to other people about Jesus. And so Jesus summons them. He calls them over and says, listen, you're chatting over there. Why don't you come over here? Let's have a conversation together. And Jesus dismantles their logic. 23. He summoned them. He spoke to them in parables. He said this, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house can't stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he can't stand, but instead, he's finished. Jesus' argument of logic is, how does that make any sense at all? Why would Satan attack himself? And then verse 27, Jesus explains what actually is happening. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions 
unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Okay, now this is kind of an unorthodox parable, but, but the picture is this. There is a, a, a dude who stole all these treasures. There's a strong man stole all these treasures, and actually it's interesting when he talks about uh, this strong man, it's a reference to that Beelzebul name that uh, Jesus gets attached to. Beelzebul means the master of the house. So he's talking about this master of the house who was a strong man, has stolen all these treasures, and he's brought them home. And Jesus' parable is saying this. If you want to recover one of the treasures, you need to take care of that strong man first. You need to show up at his house, you need to tie him up, and then you can start returning your treasure to other people. Here's your treasure. We found your treasure in the strong man's house. But, but you can't do that until you have tied up the, the, the strong man. Now, it's interesting. The, the picture is the hero who comes into the home of the strong man and ties him up to retrieve the treasure, he returns over and over again. He, he keeps coming back. And what he, Jesus is picturing is this. This is the effective invasion of Satan's kingdom by the Son of God. Every time a soul is delivered from Satan, the picture is Jesus has come, tied up Satan, picked up the soul and said, I'll be back for more, and walks out of the house. And Jesus says, that's actually what is happening. One day, that strong man will be completely destroyed. But right now, Jesus just continues to bind him and to bind him and to bind him as he rescues souls through, through, throughout all the time. Verse 28, truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. We need to start in verse 28 before we jump into what you're all thinking. Okay, verse 28, there is forgiveness for all sins, all blasphemies that are uttered. But that is an awesome reminder, isn't it? Every single one of us is forgiven because of the hope we have in Christ, and that hope we have in Christ is unlimited. He is willing to bring uh, salvation and forgiveness to those. In fact, there's hope for the Pharisees. There's hope for the one who was the outsider whose God looked a lot like him. John chapter 3, in the middle of the night, this man named Nicodemus shows up and begins to speak with Jesus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. They have this long conversation about what it means to be born again. Then you get to John chapter 7 where people are bringing accusations against Jesus and Nicodemus speaks up amidst the Pharisees and says, no, we need to watch and listen and see who this man is. You see the working in his heart has begun. And then at the end of Jesus' life as he's being taken off the cross, the one who comes and assists um, Joseph of Arimathea is Nicodemus. There's hope for Pharisees. There's also hope for those who don't understand yet, like his family. See, we know at the end of Jesus' life, Mary is standing at the foot of the cross. She gets it. She understands. We also know that two of his brothers come to an understanding of who Jesus was. James, who wrote the book of James, and Jude, who wrote the book of Jude. So there's hope for those who don't understand yet. But what this passage is telling us is, although there is forgiveness and grace and mercy that's seemingly unlimited, there is an end to God's patience. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Is guilty of an eternal sin. There's a lot written about that. There's a lot of thoughts about that verse. But there's even more fear 
about that verse. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with people who are fearful that they have somehow committed this unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So, so let's unpack it a little bit. What, what is the Holy Spirit's main function? Well, John chapter 15, said, Jesus says this, the Holy Spirit has come and he will testify about me. Throughout all of scripture, that's the Holy Spirit is given to witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in John chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, it says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world about sin because they do not believe in me. That is Jesus speaking. So the, 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 the role, the function of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness to Jesus Christ, to convict men of sin, and to point them to the saving work of Christ. All of the work the Holy Spirit does, all of it, is to glorify and exalt and declare and define the work of Jesus Christ. So what is blasphemy? Blasphemy means to slander, to insult, to speak against, to be defiant against, in a sense, to reject. So to reject the Holy Spirit, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, is to reject the Spirit's witness of Jesus Christ. So, so why did Jesus speak of blaspheming the Holy Spirit here? Because he's trying to warn these people. You look at verse uh, 30. They're saying, and, and in English it's kind of like, okay, they were saying this. But, but, but the, the, the literal Greek is saying they kept on saying over and over again, he has an unclean spirit. They kept on saying this over and over again, and they were rejecting who Jesus was. And in so doing, they were rejecting what Jesus had for them, which is forgiveness of sin. And eternal life. And so he's warning them to willfully remain blind, to reject the illumination of the Holy Spirit, to oppose the conviction of the Holy Spirit of, of, of sin, and to justify yourself by misrepresenting who Jesus is and what he came to do. That leads to death. Because there's no forgiveness for that. Because that sin is to ultimately reject the Spirit as he points to Jesus as the Savior you need. So how do you know if someone's committed that sin? Okay, I would ask a follow-up question to that. Are they breathing? Then there's still a chance. Are you worried that you've committed the sin? Are you worried that you're currently blaspheming the Holy Spirit? I'm not saying you're a child of God yet, but I'm saying that if you're worried that you have committed this sin, you haven't. Because this sin is a willful and intentional rejection of Jesus Christ. And if you're worried, that ain't a willful and intentional rejection. So you could be an outsider, and this is probably the most serious case, by deliberately rejecting the offer of God's forgiveness. It's not a case of, of misguided beliefs. It's not making a mistake in, in judgment. This is an informed and willful decision to reject Jesus by people who should know better. It's, it's the same as going to the doctor for some kind of sickness, and he says, okay, what you need to live is, is, is this pres uh, uh, prescription. Here's the medicine that you need. And you say, I'm good, never mind. No, no, he, he has diagnosed you. It's clear as day. You need this prescription. It'll take care of it. To reject the prescription 
means this sickness is going to lead to death. I'll be all right. See, see, that's what it looks like to blaspheme the Holy Spirit as he convicts your heart, as he pricks your soul and points to the sin in your life and says, you know, there, there is a healing for your sin. And it comes through Jesus and only Jesus. And you're like, nah, I'm good. See, see, this is a warning to people who deliberately reject Jesus. It, it's, it's not an attempt to frighten the conscience of a tender soul. Rejecting Jesus out of ignorance is fixable. Sinning because you're weak is fixable. But if you purposely make yourself blind and deaf to the only source of salvation, what can be done? If you say that you're not the problem, what you're saying is God is the problem. And if God is the problem, where does your forgiveness come from? Lots of outsiders. But thankfully, a bunch of insiders too. The first 13 cracks me up. I mean, that, that, this passage starting in verse 13 makes me laugh. See, Jesus goes up to the mountain. He summons those he wanted, and they came to him. Now think about that. You've got a number of people who are now following Jesus, who are, who are now disciples of Jesus, and he's like, all right, I've got to choose. And so as he goes up to the mountain, in other gospels it talks about how he prayed before he chose the apostles. And he's like, all right, out of all of these, these are the ones that I want. Now, think about the ones that he wants. Let me read through it. And not a lot will jump at you, but let me explain a little bit to you after I read through it. So these are the ones that I want. Verse 14, he appointed 12 to those he also named apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach, to have authority to drive out demons. And he uh, appointed the 12 to Simon. He gave the name Peter. All right, if that's the captain of your team, you're in trouble. You're going to see that through the book of Mark. Um, he's got some issues. Okay. James, the son of Zebedee, his brother John, he gave the name Boanerges, which is sons of thunder. Okay, those are his assistant captains. You always see Peter and, and James and John being pulled aside by Jesus. That's his, his three, right? So, so you got Peter as the captain, uh, James and John are the, the assistant captains, and their nicknames, he calls them the sons of thunder. So they are a very soft touch. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So Jesus goes to the mountain. He prays about who he should call to himself, who he wanted, and who he chooses are these 12 people. One of them we know right out of the gate is going to betray him. Okay. Seven of these 12 are never heard from again in the book of Mark. You got four fishermen. Not, not, you know, respectable, but not high class. You've got a zealot. Simon the zealot. You know what a zealot is? A zealot was a freedom fighter. He was a freedom fighter who, who was willing to use violence to end the Roman occupation. A zealot would always carry a dagger just in case the opportunity presented itself for him to wipe out a Roman soldier. And Jesus said, I'll take one. A tax collector, the exact opposite of a zealot. See, with the zealot who's the freedom fighter who's trying to overthrow Rome, you got the tax collector who's trying to buddy up to Rome. I bet you those meetings were pretty interesting. I mean, these, these men weren't exactly uh, rock stars. But Jesus invites them to be insiders, and he, he, he's got a twofold job for them. 
verse 14. He appointed 12, who he also named apostles. First part of the job is to be with him. You hear how simple that sounds? To be with him. Not accomplish great things. Not get a seminary degree. Not go into full-time ministry and become a pastor or a missionary. But simply to be with him. To spend intentional time with him. To know him. To talk to him. To watch him. To listen to him. Ask him questions. So how are you doing with that? What next steps do you need to take when it comes to being with Jesus? Maybe, maybe you need to commit to reading the Bible four days a week instead of three. That's a next step. Praise God for that. Maybe, maybe it's you need to commit to spend ten minutes a day instead of just five. That's, that's, that's great. We're walking through the book of Mark together. Next week, we're going to preach on Mark 4. So this week, read Mark chapter 4. Reach out to somebody else in the church. See if they're doing it. Compare notes. I've done that with a number of people this week. It's been really kind of enjoyable to see what, what stands out to other people. I mean, there's, they're, they're sitting at the feet of Jesus. How are you doing with that? Hey, let me, let me um, this occurred to me this morning. I think sometimes, and this, this is my mistake and my error, so I will own that. I think sometimes when we talk about spending time with Jesus, particularly in, in reading his word, <coughs> excuse me, I think I oversimplify it, and I make it sound like it's not difficult. It's difficult, particularly if you're doing through the Bible in a year. Right now, you are probably like, I don't know if I'm going to make it through January. I get it. It is, it is, it is difficult. It's hard work. So if you're struggling, be encouraged. You are not alone. Be with him. Be with him. That's the, the first aspect of the job of the apostles. The other aspect of the job was to further his gospel ministry by preaching and ca using his authority to overthrow the, 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 the uh, power of Satan. So, so being this insider means you continue the primary purpose of Jesus Christ, to preach the good news of himself, to focus on who he is, to focus on why he's come, to rescue people from the clutches of Satan himself. So let me ask you again, how are you doing with that? What are your next steps there? Who is the one person that you have in your mind, whether it be at home, at work, in your neighborhood, but that, that one person that God has laid on your heart that you want to see come to know Jesus Christ? Who is your one person? I mean, th th honestly, there should be a lot more than one that in your heart is broken because you want them to know Christ. But, but who's your one? Who's that one? Get that name in your head. And, and so, so how do you continue and further the gospel ministry of Jesus with that one person. This is some pray for them. Pray for them. Assault the, the, the gates of hell as you lift up their name and pray that they will have a collision with Jesus Christ and come to know him as their savior. Pray for them. And then live life in front of them. Be you and all your warts and wrinkles. Be you. And then invite them out for coffee, for lunch, for breakfast, whatever makes the most sense. And when you're there, okay, oh, I got to shit. No, 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 no. 
ask them to share their story with you. Everybody's got a story. And it'll give you a better understanding of how to pray for them. And then after that, at some point, hey, you know what? I appreciate you sharing your story with me. I'd love to get, get together with you and be able to share my story with you. Man, I mean, sure, invite them to church. But it's never invite them to church, and that's the period. Invite them to church and lunch. Because everybody appreciates a free lunch. That's not why. Because if you invite them to church and it ends at the end of the service and they go their way and you go your way, what has happened in their mind is church has all the answers. And the reality is, no, no, you do church and lunch and you sit at lunch with them like, hey, what did you think about today? And you engage them in conversation. You begin to interweave aspects of your story and their story and the gospel account and who Jesus is and what it is that he did and how Jesus has rescued you from your sin. And you have that conversation with them and it's a glorious moment. Not because they're like, oh, hallelujah, I believe. That would be great and we will celebrate louder than that. Because you're being obedient to the call that Christ has placed in your life. Sure, you're going to have that lunch and you're going to walk away and be like, I have no idea how to answer that question. Well, you know what you say to them? You just create your own answer. God will forgive you. Don't worry about it. But make sure you're paying attention. No, you, you say, I don't know. It's a good question. I'll do some research and I'll, I'll get back to you. And you, there's a number of us you can contact and ask your questions. But, but you need to understand that what it is that Christ had called these two is to continue the gospel ministry. Because what happens is this. If you are truly an insider, then you want to see outsiders become insiders. And I'll be honest with you, <laughs> this insider crew, we are a motley bunch. Warts and wrinkles, I even mentioned. In fact, you look at verse 33 of chapter 3, and you see Jesus interacting with the insider. The crowd is sitting around him. His mom and his brothers and his sisters come to the house and they're asking for Jesus. Verse 33, Jesus replies to them, who are my mom and my brothers? And he looks at those sitting in the circle around him. Who's sitting in the circle around him? <laughs> Lepers. Formerly demon-possessed. Maim. Lame, deaf, blind, paralyzed, sinners. And he looks at those sitting in the circle and he said this. <laughs> Here's my mother and my brother. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus says, those who do God's will, those who listen to Jesus, those who repent of their sin and then sit at his feet to be with him, those are the insiders. Is that you? The ones that Jesus rescues from the outside and brings to the inside those that he saves are his delight. Do you believe that about yourself? 
Do you believe that as Jesus looks at you as one who's sitting in the circle, that he's filled full of delight? Because he is. You want to know how much he loves you? He was willing to become an outsider so that he might carry you to the inside. There's no greater love than that. That a man lays down his life for his friends. And I call you my friends, Jesus said, if you obey what I say. So this morning as we close, I'm going to ask that you bow your heads and close your eyes. and Just take half a minute just to reflect on what it is that you need to do in your next steps. There's two groups of people. There's obviously outsiders and there's insiders. And so if you're with us this morning and you fall into one of those camps where you don't know Christ as your Savior, then I would pray that this morning you would consider what it is that Christ did for you to purchase your pardon. And then for those that are here this morning who are insiders, <laughs> consider what it is that you need to do in order to take your next steps to be more faithful and obedient to what it is that Christ has called you to. Father, I thank you for your great love for us. I thank you for your rescue. I thank you for your authority, for the fact that we stand forgiven because of what you did on the cross for us. And Lord, I ask for those who are here this morning who, who may not know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, may not have tasted of his mercy and his grace, Lord, would today be that day? Would they understand and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came and took their place on the cross and then rose from the dead proving that his payment was sufficient? those of us that have known you for a long time, forgive us of our complacency. God, may we take our next steps with you. Father, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his good name I pray.